year, or I'm in, I'm in my fifth year, and love my job. It's good to see Ethan Ream in the back of the house. I haven't seen that face in a long time. Um, but uh, yeah, y'all are a supporting church. If you if you're a member here and you didn't know that, uh, we're one of y'all's ministries that you support, and you've got some alumni in your midst who are involved in the ministry. But uh, it's my joy to walk through life with the students at Florida State and TCC. Uh, we're going through the Gospel of John this semester, and that's what we're going to be in tonight. So I would love to see you again at the evening service. But, um, yeah, if you have any questions about that, I'd love to answer them. I'll be around after the service. But I've got Nora and Johnny with me this morning. They're on the Burns Row. It's nice and full, completely filled out with my kids, Nora and Johnny, on there. But we've got a 6-year-old named Nora, a 4-year-old named Johnny, uh, a one-year-old named Annalise, who we adopted in 2020, and we actually have started to foster her two-week-old brother. So pray for us with a newborn, because it, I was just telling somebody earlier, September's the busiest month of my year, and then in October I did back-to-back weddings, and then fall conference, and then we went and got a baby boy from Fort Myers. So I'm like, holidays, slow slow pace, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. Uh, but again, good to be with you this morning. Thanks for uh, letting me uh, fill in the pulpit. Uh, so we're about to read. I like to pray before I read uh, the passage. And uh, before we get there, I'd love to ask you, how is your vision? I see a lot of glasses in the house. I'm sure there's some contacts. My wife got LASIK last year, uh, so she's got like superhuman vision. Uh, but maybe you use glasses or bifocals, or maybe you have 2020 and you're like never had to have any help. I've actually read that not just 2015, but 2010 is possible, and I think that's what I titled the sermon: "Better Than 2010 Vision," uh, because we're going to be talking about how God sees. Uh, but as we get ready, as we approach the text, I wanted to kind of um, remind you that God doesn't see like we see. Uh, man looks on the outward appearance; uh, God sees to the heart. Let's pray, and then we'll read. From 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we'll be covering the first 13 verses. Pray with me, please. Lord, uh, thank you again that we can be uh, in this place. And um, you remind us in your word that uh, the church is a building, but it's a building made of people. Uh, It's a body uh, made of people. It's a bride uh, made of people. And uh, I'm just encouraged to be with these people, uh, to be with this church body uh, this morning, and so I pray that you would bless uh, even the reading of your word, God, uh, because um, it's by reading it uh, that that your spirit will oftentimes work uh, and, and reveal things, illuminate uh, things, um, illuminate our hearts. And so I pray that as we read these verses and study this king uh, this morning, that we would be reminded of the the great, uh, greater, better truer king, uh, who is Jesus. And so we lift up all these things to you in the name of Jesus now. Amen. Amen. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, and reading uh, to verse 13. It says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. 
Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me, before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Y'all, I say this at RUF every week. Uh, but the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Uh, you might have noticed uh, in this passage, if you've looked at the, the life of Samuel, any time recently, there is a, a shift. Uh, and it, you know, it's referred to at the beginning of chapter 16. A big shift, though, a big transition uh, in the life of God's people, uh, in the life of Samuel. Uh, we'll get to what that means for, for Samuel and David uh, and others in just a minute, but you should know before we dive in uh, that the book of Samuel chronologically follows the book of Judges. And God's people, they've regressed to the point uh, at the end of Judges, we read this in, in chapter 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What the writer is doing uh, at the end of Judges is is showing us as the reader, but also that that people group, they, they need a leader. And so they follow each judge uh, throughout the book of Judges. You know, God's chosen leaders for a time, but there's this cycle of the judges. Then they stray, uh, and, and a king, that happens over and over again, but a king is foreshadowed. And they eventually ask Samuel for a king like all the other nations. And Saul is just that man. He fits the bill. He looks the part. He plays it well. For a time. But then he strays too. He disobeys God. He shows his true colors. He shows that he is far too concerned uh, with what people think of him and much less concerned with Yahweh. He has been rejected as king here at the beginning of this chapter. And Samuel is in a place of grief. This is where our passage picks up. And as we dive in, I want you to know the theme of the passage and you know the books of First and Second Samuel in many ways is that God sees not as man sees. Uh, and maybe you need to hear that this morning. Uh, with all that you've got going on in your life, maybe you need to be reminded that God can see what you can't. I know I need to hear that. That God does know what you don't. That his vision is way better than 2010. And it is way better than yours or mine. 
And we're going to see that God sees uh, in two ways in our text. We're going to see how God sees us through change. And we're going to secondly see how God sees to the heart. So let's begin with this kind of idea of transition and how God sees us through change. This is the first five verses or so. Moving on, moving on <clears throat> is hard, isn't it? I think some of the hardest times in my life, and I remind our freshmen of this, but uh, are when I move into a new job or a new place and I'm lonely and I'm like, oh yeah, it's just like freshman year of college. You know, fall of freshman year, I'm an, an extroverted guy. If you know me, I like to hang out with people. I'm always looking for, you know, what's a fun thing we can do? That sounds, I was that guy in college like, hey, who wants to go to Waffle House at 2 a.m.? You know, like, let's do that next fun thing. Uh, but as I moved to uh, the REF internship at Stark, in Starkville, Mississippi, and then Jackson, Mississippi for seminary, and then here, even though I grew up in Thomasville, Georgia, you know, transitions are hard. There's a lot of things that you've got to think about. Moving on is hard. And, and think about your own life, whether it's a mistake uh, that you made that you're trying to recover from, whether you lost something or someone and you're mourning, whether you've been working towards something big and then you get past it and you think, man, what do I do now? Like soldiers coming home from war, re-entering family life and the working world, that's got to be difficult. A widow or a widower learning to live life alone. Difficult, a relationship ending, a job change. All those things are hard. And I, I would just encourage, remind, if you or anyone you know in this church is going through that, move towards them. Put an arm around them. That is one of the huge bonuses that we have uh, as, as belonging to this family, uh, this church family, the body of Christ. And the body should be caring for each other in all kinds of transitions. But in our story here, Samuel, God's last judge and now prophet, is tasked with the job of finding the king when, when, when they said they wanted one, like all the other nations. And Samuel was, was the one that, that God said, you know, that's him, his name is Saul, and you can tell all the people that, that he's going to be the king. He did all those things. Samuel was the one who anointed him, and, and you know, as king... Saul and, and now Samuel as this prophet who is, is alongside Saul, uh, they built a relationship. But now Samuel, think about it. He has seen Saul disobey God. He's confronted Saul on it. And he was just God's messenger in chapter 15 to tell Saul, you've been rejected. You are no longer the king. Someone else is going to take your place. Y'all, Samuel, if you think about it, he is committed to serving the Lord. But here we see in the beginning of chapter 16, he's really struggling. He's struggling to move on from how things were. He's probably grieving in some ways this relationship and thinking, how could it have gone differently? What should we have done differently? Could I have said or done anything differently? He's probably thinking of his own life and future and he's thinking of the state that God's people are in with no king to lead them. And there are likely a million things that are keeping him up at night, worrying, tossing and turning, praying, seeking God. But isn't it an encouragement to see God pursue Samuel in his grief? Chapter 15 ends by uh, telling us, the writer telling us that Samuel is grieved over Saul. And then this passage starts right off with verse 1. And God asking Samuel, how long will you grieve over him? 
since I've rejected Saul from being king of Israel. God doesn't say, you're in serious sin, Samuel. He doesn't you know, say that Samuel's grief is wrong. He cares about Samuel. He is telling Samuel, it's time. You've been grieving, it is time uh, to, to, to move on. And just as he is explaining that Saul has been rejected as king, he commands Samuel, fill your horn with oil to go anoint a new king. It will be one of the sons of Jesse the Bethlehemite. But very quickly, Samuel's mind and heart flood with fear for his life. You know, God is like, I found a replacement. Fill your horn with oil. But now Samuel's like, oh no, but what if Saul finds out? What, like, God, what, what are we going to do about this thing? Right? And God's quick to provide a solution. Samuel, go into town and, and tell them that you're going to sacrifice uh, for a feast with the people. Which is true, actually. They just don't know what they're sacrificing for. I love that. God tells Saul, take a heifer. And I love that despite uh, his feelings of, of, of fear and grief, Samuel goes in verse 4. He is walking by faith, y'all. He did what the Lord commanded. But it isn't long before these elders of the city, they show up and they have no idea what this prophet of God is approaching them for. And they're like, hey, Samuel, is it a, is it a good thing that you're here or not? Samuel invites them, prepare yourselves uh, to sacrifice and to feast with me. And they do, along with Jesse and his sons. And we're going to move to verses 6 to 13 in just a minute. But man, it's kind of a roller coaster at the beginning of this, this chapter. Samuel is struggling like many prophets uh, before him. He does what God commands, but man, he is just torn up inside. He's confused. Uh, he is He's wondering what is going to happen. How are people going to respond to this? I don't understand all these things around me. It is really hard. I am afraid. And then you know, he shows up to the people in Bethlehem. And they're afraid too. The leaders of the city are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We know that oftentimes when a prophet shows up, that's not a good thing. So uh, let me ask you, have you ever had so much you know, happen in a season of life that you are just in emotional knots, you're exhausted, and you just don't know what to do about it. You may break into tears because you're so emotionally drained, you're mentally taxed, you're relationally confused, you're spiritually malnourished. It's like you look up from your life and you feel like Rip Van Winkle or something. Like, man, I feel like everybody else is like living their lives, and I fell asleep in a cave for you know 50 years or whatever, 20 years. Change can be extremely difficult. Scary, taxing. But y'all, let me remind you this morning, God sees us through it because he is sovereign over it. There are times in my life where I will cry out to God. I remember doing this in seminary. I know I've done it since I moved here. But I cry out with the words from a song, a Rich Mullins song. He says, hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaken like a leaf. You've been my king of glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? There are plenty of times where I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling sad or fatigued, and I forget that God can and has seen me through the fog. Let me ask you, what do you tend to do when things get cloudy? What do you do when you're full of fear? What do you do when you don't know what lies beyond this day, this week, this month? Maybe you tend towards busyness, overwork, overindulgence. 
losing yourself in whatever that thing is, just to run away from it all. Let me encourage you that the same God that directed Samuel in this passage, he is here for you and me today. Jesus said, it is better that I go away because I will send the helper. I will send the spirit to be with you. We have the Holy Spirit to, to, to indwell us uh, and to transform us, to sanctify us. And the same God uh, that was directing Samuel in this passage, he will see us through triumph, he will see us through sorrow, the harvest feast, or the fallow ground. Sandra McCracken, uh, she says this in her song, In Feast or Fallow, When the earth beneath me crumbles and quakes, not a sparrow falls, nor a hair from my head. Without his hand to guide me, my shield and my strength, in joy or in sorrow, in life or in death. Makes me think of the vows that we take when we get married, which I think we all are like, man, those are beautiful vows, but I am not the perfect husband or wife. But man, is not Jesus the perfect spouse? Is not God the, the, the faithful father uh, who loves his children better than any earthly parent? God is so faithful. Great is his faithfulness. God will see you and me through whatever we have coming. Just as he did for Samuel and the Israelite nation when one king failed and there wasn't quite another one on the horizon. And that leads to our second point. Right as Samuel follows God's orders into Bethlehem, again, walking by faith, not by sight. He's surprising the elders with his visit for a man he doesn't even know, like he's never met him yet. We could argue he's a boy here. But God throws this apparent curveball. Samuel's looking for one thing, and God gives him something completely different. Because while man looks on the outward appearance, what? God looks on the heart. How does God see to the heart? Our second point. Look at verse 6. And as you do, I want to share with you that this scene could be taking place at Jesse's house. Uh, I read that Samuel may have gone to Jesse's house or invited his family uh, somewhere to prepare the sacrifice for them so that he could have a, pro- like a private meeting uh, and uh, you know, find this mystery son to anoint so that it wasn't this absolute public thing. But the scene is, we've got Samuel laying eyes on Jesse's firstborn son, Eliab, right? And he's thinking, ooh, this must be the one. He definitely looks apart. This dude totally works out. He's super tall. I'm sure he can dunk. God says, nope, that's not him. Don't look on the outward characteristics. That's not how I'm making my decision, Samuel. I don't see like you see. You and all the other people, y'all look on the outward appearance. I look on the heart. Eliab looks the part, but Samuel doesn't know his heart. Only God does, and God knows he isn't the right man for the job. In fact, neither is Abinadab or Shema or the next four sons who you know, come by. One by one, Samuel tells Jesse, it's not this one either. Until in verse 11, Samuel's like, are there any more? I mean, you've got a lot of sons, but are there any more? Jesse responds, there remains the youngest, or uh, we could translate that the smallest, or we could translate that the least. One pastor says the term used here carries undertones of insignificance, of not counting for very much. The term used for David, that is. Certainly not a prime candidate for prestigious work. In other words, we didn't think to bring him to something like this because he's just a young shepherd boy and there's no place for him here. 
He wouldn't understand or appreciate all this adult stuff. But Samuel says, we'll wait for him, and no one sits down to eat until he gets here. And when he arrives, it's immediate. In walks this handsome boy with a ruddy appearance, beautiful eyes, probably dirtier than anybody present because they all got ready, and maybe he did, but you know, he's, he's just a kid. He's likely coming from the field where he's been with the sheep. But God tells Samuel, arise, anoint him, this is the one. Samuel obeys, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon this child, David, from that day forward, it says. Who would have known? The answer is nobody. Nobody would have guessed this. No one would have chosen the least of these to be the new king. He doesn't have all the necessary merit badges. He's no Eagle Scout. He doesn't have the life experience, the build, the height. He doesn't look like Saul. I mean, what does Saul say to David when he's about to go fight Goliath? He is a champion. He has been training for this his whole life since he was a youth. You are a youth. You're a kid. He's going to kill you. He doesn't look the part. But God doesn't care about that. God sees past all that. You know what all that is? It's all the stuff that distracts you and me too. All the stuff that we, you know, that distracts us from looking on God, from gazing on Him. It's like all the things we would have assumed would be significant cause us to keep saying, Him, right? Wait, wait, no, it's Him, isn't it? Like a child, you know, saying, Are we there yet? Or guessing over and over again, We and they are like broken records until we run out of options. And God just has to tell us, his name is David, he's not even in the room. We would have done the same thing. And I think we we do it in our lives. Uh, A pastor wrote this, in this narration of the selection and anointing of David, his personal name is withheld until the very end, verse 13. Giving it a special place of prominence, that name David then enters our history. It will be repeated more than 600 times in the Old Testament and another 60 in the new. I love that it's just it's kind of like a mic drop at the end of the passage. And I think one application that we can draw from this is that we can't trust our sight, regardless of how good your vision is, because it can often be deceiving. You know, those those um, fallen eyes are connected to a fallen heart. So there's even more likelihood that we're going to miss see, misunderstand How many times have you trusted what you saw only to learn how wrong you were? And add a a cloudy heart, a cloudy mind with sin, a spotty memory. And you have a recipe for all kinds of error, don't you? I've been there. So another lesson we can take from this point is instead to look to the one who sees beneath the skin to the heart. You and I would not have chosen the right king. But thank goodness it wasn't up to you or me or Samuel. And y'all, the Christian life isn't about walking blindly into walls. But it is about walking not by sight, but by faith in the one who sees deeper and wider and further than we ever could. Again, come back tonight because we're going to be in the Gospel of John and it is all about light. Uh, Our series is called Illuminate, and it's all about how Jesus, like the light of the world, who was there at creation, again re-enters the world uh, in human form and brings life and light uh, to humanity, a dark place, 
As we walk by faith in him, he brings light to our lives. He is the light. He is how we will live as we are supposed to live uh, as created things, but but now as adopted uh, sons and daughters. And he invites us to follow him. I mean, how many times did Jesus say, follow me? Don't you want to follow the light? If there's somebody at the front of your party, don't you want that person to have a light, especially in the dark places? Jesus says, I am the light. I am the light of the world. And y'all, David, he goes on to be quite a king. An earthly and relatable king who has huge triumphs, huge failures. Uh, He is sinful, but he is repentant. And he's a king who the rest of the Bible, like that quote said, the Bible holds him in high esteem. But the people never saw him coming. Just like no one ever saw Jesus coming. Isaiah 53 predicts that Jesus, great David's greater son, called in another spot, would grow up in the middle of Jewish life and not stand out from the rest. But he was the king that David never was. David didn't touch Jesus and how great of a king uh, Jesus was. And in many ways, David's, David's kingship is meant to set up Jesus' greater kingship. Although David failed, and you can kind of see his, his, his kingdom and his kingship spiral after things with Bathsheba. But although he failed to look to God throughout his life, Jesus' eyes never misjudged or deceived him. They never failed him. His gaze and commitment to his mission never faltered again as we've been studying the Gospel of John. It's so cool to see how Jesus is just so deliberate and committed and you know, going to places like uh, Lazarus' home after Lazarus has died. Jesus waits, by the way, for Lazarus to die so that he can then raise him. But he's not running. Jesus is walking. He is on mission. He is committed, but he, his pace, it's just so like, I know what I'm doing. I know the timing of things. I am obeying my Father in perfect timing. His gaze and his commitment to his mission never faltered. And his reign has not and will not ever end. He is, he is the, the good and better king. I think our series... Uh, or the, the, you know, a theme to bring to mind is the once and future king, if you've ever read that. Uh, I think White is the writer. And I always kind of thought, man, that's an interesting title for these King Arthur uh, books. And David is this, this king who once lived, but who foreshadows this future king, Jesus, who is better, who is so much better than any king, any leader we have ever seen. And he is worthy of our worship. He is... You know, the, the, the not safe but good king of Narnia. He is the king that we are meant to follow. And man, the, the, the writer of Samuel here, uh, the prophet Samuel, he is, he is giving us a taste of what the New Testament just breaks open. Uh, we are seeing shadows of Jesus here. Uh, and so again, return tonight. Uh, that's all we have this morning. I'll pray. And then we will sing our hymn of response. Bow your heads with me. Lord, thank you so much uh, for...
this morning uh, that we can just be reminded, I know I need to hear that right now at this point in the semester, that you are a God who sees us through transition, you see us through hard times, uh, you see us through loss, you see us through failure. And it's so easy for me and I think my brothers and sisters here uh, to be so discouraged and just want to run, uh, to run to comforts. Uh, but I'm reminded of the, the hymn, when other comforts fail uh, and, and, and friends flee, uh, you are the help of the helpless and we are invited to abide in you. And God, may we abide in you. May we look uh, to King Jesus uh, who never faltered and it's amazing that he obeyed perfectly and he gave that obedience, that righteousness to us. And so we, may we walk by faith uh, in him. May we look to him. May we rest in him and trust uh, in him. And I lift up all the burdens that we carry, Lord, all the, the stories that we have now uh, to you and pray that you would meet us, uh, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would not leave us uh, in the place that you found us, but that you would walk alongside us, uh, transforming us by the renewal of our mind uh, as we look to you. Change our minds, change our hearts. Draw us to yourself, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll stand, we'll sing our hymn of response, number 488.